Good afternoon. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Linda, for that uh, introduction. Um, standing here, uh, I'm reminded of the many times I've been in this room, graduate student, uh, and I've been coming to these sessions. And so, but most of the time when I'm in this room, I'm on that side of the podium. And I just wanted to tell you that it's a little different from this side of the microphone. So uh, I was a little nervous, but uh, we're going to have a good time. Um, I am delighted to be here. Uh, I wanted to begin by saying that I accepted the invitation to come here today um, because I saw it as an opportunity to share some ideas that have been growing out of um, one of my publications, um, the 2009 AERJ uh, article um, on the model of generative change. Uh, I've been toying with some ideas related to that model, and um, it's, the ideas are ever evolving. Uh, and so, um, and developing. And so I saw this as an opportunity to engage in a conversation with colleagues, friends. I didn't know how intimate it was going to be, but it's always good to have an intimate conversation with friends and colleagues. Uh, and so I'm welcoming your uh, input and continuing conversation about the ideas that I'll be sharing with you today. Following my introduction of the um, model of generative change in 2009 and my mention of it in my AERA uh, presidential talk, I began to receive um, uh, correspondences from colleagues across national boundaries about the model of generative change where researchers have been trying it out in context to um, to look at its uh, efficacy uh, in different contexts and and they have been their conversations with me have been facilitating um, an evolution of the model so speaking of evolution I wanted to say that here is the evolution of my title um, for the talk today. Um, I am revisiting the silence dialogue, but I'll be using the model of generative change to see or to think about how we can facilitate issues of equity, quality, and educational opportunity. So um, evolution is good. Moving right along, um, as most of you are aware, or all of you are probably aware, Lisa Delpit um, published in 1988 an article um, which appeared in Harvard Educational Review in that article titled The Silence Dialogue, Power and Pedagogy in Educating Other People's Children. Lisa Delpit used the occasion of the then hot topic of process-oriented writing instruction versus skills-oriented uh, instruction as a starting point for a conversation about a culture of power in the classroom. And as we all know, a culture of power in classrooms continues to exist in all, most if not all, classrooms um, today. And the culture that we see, the culture of power, reflects the culture that we see in the larger society most of the time. Um, in that article, Lisa Delpit discussed her views on, um, in two different areas. One area 
she wanted to share her views on um, how the culture of power within classrooms influenced teachers' ability or inability to serve the needs of students of color. Another point, or important point, that emerged from her conversation was her observation that certain populations, in that particular case, teacher populations, were being left out of the dialogue about the education of children of color. Well, we've come a long way since 1988, and moving forward, we see that the hot topic for today is no longer uh, process-based versus skills-based instruction of writing, but um, the uh, topics that we are uh, looking at today include, some of them include uh, testing and accountability, uh, flipped instruction and the role of technology in classrooms, globalization, corporatization, and privatization of education, as well as the achievement gap versus opportunity gap, which is a very important distinction given the fact that the way you look at the gap will definitely determine how you approach its uh, resolution or how to address it. But as the saying goes, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So although the hot topics seem to have changed, um, there have been some common, consistent challenges in education, which I'd like to point out, because we still need to address these, and we'll see how the conversation um, today can move us in that direction. So some persisting challenges in urban education. We see uh, rapidly changing demographics in rural as well as urban uh, schools. We see high poverty rates. It's a very important and um, uh, central topic that a lot of people are talking about, the high rates of poverty uh, in this country and their relation to student achievement in classrooms, low teacher quality in schools that predominantly serve students of color, language barriers from um, a rapid um, influx and immigration of students worldwide. It's growing faster than it's ever grown before, and low literacy rates. These are some of the uh, challenges that have persisted and that we are seeing in classrooms um, in urban as well as rural classrooms. There are some persisting challenges uh, that um, uh, I mention as well, opportunity, a gap uh, between the haves and have-nots. For me, the gap has never seemed the chasm between the haves and have-nots are quite remarkable at this time, and it almost seems we're uh, becoming like some other countries where it's hard to cross that chasm uh, if you find yourself on, one, on the side of uh, poor and um, uh, disenfranchised populations in this country. Segregation is re-emerging, re, uh, 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 becoming prevalent and sanctioned. It's okay now. At least at one time it wasn't okay. But now it's okay. We might as well uh, perhaps in some situations have Plessy versus uh, uh, Ferguson because in these separate segregated schools, many of them, it is appalling when you look at the resources and the learning conditions that some students um, endure, um, which I'm 
told by them impacts their self-concepts about what the society thinks about them, what the world thinks about them. Differentiated um, access to knowledge uh, is a persisting uh, challenge and the digital divide. Now, I present this, um, this chart right here for one reason, just it, 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 it shows from 1973 to uh, 2004. But what I wanted you to see is the consistency in that gap over time. Many things have been tried, but um, the gap has remained and is pretty much consistent over these years. And um, I find that very interesting, something to contemplate. As much as we've done, as much... Uh, war on poverty, uh, money that we put into schools, yet we're seeing consistent trends continuing. Persisting challenges in teacher education, an area of particular concern uh, for me. Teacher shortages. I've got personal friends. Uh, and I was looking at the video on um, um, American teachers. And it starts out with a group of teachers who are saying, all these marvelous, wonderful things that they've done in schools as teachers uh, in their various jobs. Uh, and then the, the movie continues and the documentary talks about teachers in America. And I was very impressed with these wonderful teachers who introduced themselves and their innovations that they've done in schools at the beginning and, um, and then was a little bit depressed as the movie proceeded. But as it got to the end of the movie, uh, or the documentary, each one of those teachers reappeared and told when they left teaching. Very sad, uh, heartbreaking. And so shortages of good teachers, good teachers who have options to do other things. Some of my own friends, um, the way society looks at them, um, unappreciated, low pay, inability to uh, support their own families, um, more and more of our good teachers are leaving the profession or uh, choosing perhaps not to go in. Um, but large class sizes, um, are, um, student teacher differences. We see, of course, the difference between the teachers in classrooms and the increasingly diverse student populations that they're serving, uh, teachers poorly prepared. Uh, they themselves admit their, in a, uh, their uh, feelings of inadequate uh, training to use technology in classrooms, to um, address the standards, um, core competencies, um, and in particular, their training to be prepared to go into diverse classrooms and meet the needs of the very diverse populations that they're finding in the classroom. And so they feel that they feel that they've been poorly prepared in these areas. Low teacher expectations, quite often um, teachers will lower expectations um, in order to come up with some uh, meeting ground where they can um, uh, address the needs of their students and have some success. So they kind of lower expectations quite often. Insufficient resources in classrooms, high-stakes testing is driving many teachers uh, to the edge, and low salaries. And we might add, I was just listening uh, to a, 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 a NPR segment uh, that was published last year 
talking about the fact that teachers who serve students in um, schools that uh, serve predominantly uh, poor students of color, um, they're uh, consistently paid lower. There are many reasons for that because those teachers who uh, have longevity or um, um, at more advanced degrees move on quite often to uh, more affluent schools uh, where students perhaps they feel are prepared um, uh, to meet the standards, perhaps. Um, but anyway, it said very clearly that there is a trend that teachers in schools that serve predominantly um, poor and students of color, the teachers are pretty much generally paid lower. Um, so in my mind, one of the most important uh, uh, um, challenges facing teacher education is the preparation of teachers to address the needs of diverse students, to go into 21st century classrooms prepared to meet the needs of their students. And so I've been doing work in cross-national context. Uh, I have a 10 years of over, over a decade of work in South Africa, particularly interested in how after um, um, their um, um, bout with apartheid, how they were going to uh, move forward to meet the needs of an increasingly diverse um, populations in their classrooms, given the fact that the, um, most, uh, a lot of the teachers in the schools that the students were trying to get into um, were white um, and um, uh, not prepared to deal with the diversity with which uh, they were faced. I've done teacher training in these classrooms, many classrooms in South Africa, and I've been told by many teachers in training uh, that um, they will be leaving teaching because they never imagined the challenges that would be, they would be facing when they went into the classroom or when they went into their original training. Um, and so they're challenged in South Africa, and I wanted to see how they would be moving forward to meet the needs of the diverse student po uh, population that would be coming into their classrooms. My work in the U.S., South Africa, Australia, I've been spending a little time there lately looking at their um, um, strategies for addressing diversity um, there in Australia, India, fascinating place. I spent some time there recently and um, was... Um, was very excited about their enthusiasm and passion for moving forward to try to meet the very diverse student populations that are coming into their classrooms. New Zealand um, of Canada, spent some time, First Nations students there, teachers are challenged. How do we meet the needs of our students? And New Zealand is my newest adventure. And I'm so excited about my time there. I'm very hopeful uh, about the time that I've spent talking to Maori and Pacifica populations about how they're moving forward. And so I'm looking for models, and I'll tell you why as we proceed, about the preparation of teachers to meet the needs of increasingly diverse classrooms um, where they will be uh, teaching. And so uh, we need teachers, as I've traveled across national boundaries and looked at teacher education here in the U.S., we need teachers who are prepared to teach students 
who are different from themselves. Um, we need teachers who are part of a global agenda to become agents rather than objects of change. Teachers, there's a lot of teachers. Uh, I have some numbers here. Uh, if, they would, if we would coalesce and work together on an, on an agenda uh, proactively, an agenda for change, and um, I think we could uh, see uh, some changes um, occurring. And we need teachers who are prepared to teach poor and marginalized students specifically and to teach them with a sense of efficacy and generativity. That is what I propose. And so, as I've been traveling internationally, I've been in conversations with individuals about a global agenda. I think it's a very powerful notion. For when we start talking about the similarities and the uh, challenges that they're facing, that we're facing, the similarities, um, they agree that uh, that's something we'd like to continue conversations about. So when we realize that teachers represent 2%, uh, these statistics show, of the world population, it may be one of the largest or the largest profession in the world. Count them all up. You've got a lot of people there, all right? A lot of people, I think, translate into power. From 2011 to 2021, U.S. teachers are expected uh, to increase in numbers from 49, over 49 uh, million to 50, over 53 million in primary and secondary schools alone. That's a lot of teachers. And um, uh, in the U.S., uh, I wanted to just kind of point out um, we have over 50 million learners in schools that um, employ over 3.5 million full-time educators. Among them, only 15% of the learners are African-American. Um, and um, this is over 7.6 million highly marginalized individuals. Predominant teaching force here in the United States, over 79% of the U.S. teachers are female, monolingual. Uh, most are middle class. Um, and uh, some figures on other uh, groups change. Um, periodically, but um, the figures I looked at here said 86% are white, approximately 9% are African-American, and African-American males, approximately 1%, uh, and 5% uh, Latino. Uh, now, I can summarize with the statement that education system is not doing an outstanding job of uh, providing education for poor, marginalized students of color. We can do better. In South Africa, 12 million learners, over 24,000 public schools, employing over 365,000 educators. Roughly 80% of the public school teachers are, are uh, educators are, are black, South African, um, systematically undertrained during apartheid. Um, 75% of the white teachers are, would be classified as middle class and women. They too are at a point of, of crisis in terms of meeting the needs of the very diverse student populations that are flowing into classrooms now.
And in New Zealand, I was kind of fascinated, um, smaller in size. Uh, but when we look at the, um, the learners, approximately uh, 759,000, employing over 52,000 educators, among them, 22% of the learners are Maori, only about 10% of the teachers. Um, but it's something interesting going on there, which I'd like to look at more closely, having to do with the uh, Treaty of uh, Waitango. Uh, and um, <laughs> um, um, what they are doing to move forward within the constraints of the treaty um, to meet the needs, to attempt to meet the needs of uh, this population, and then to contrast that with the Pacifica uh, populations who came there uh, to work. Uh, and um, um, are um, underserved students of color as well. And so when I look at these three uh, populations, I'm communicating and wanting to collaborate with them more so that we can talk more about lessons learned, about addressing the needs of culturally and linguistically diverse students, poor students of color. So the first column is the U.S. Um, the uh, top group is um, up at the top. The white are, uh, um, are um, other. The um, blue are um, students of color. And um, the bluish is white. So if you look at the U.S. and New Zealand, um, although different in size, the proportions are quite similar. But I'm also quite fascinated with the situation in South Africa because with 40 million people influxing into the classroom, I would think that they have the greatest uh, motivation of all to make some changes in their ability to address the learning needs of the population. So now, why these three populations? Well, in my time that I've spent with them, I've found that um, there are some consistent uh, or persisting challenges that they all uh, experience. They have high rates of child poverty. Uh, language instruction uh, is a contested issue in each of these countries with these populations. And the education system is challenged to meet the needs of students of color. Dropout rates are high in all three contexts. Inequality and excess access to schooling across national boundaries is something that we need to address. We need to address. Students of color and low-income students have consistently and historically been assigned the least qualified teachers in all three contexts, least intellectually challenging curriculum, it's a trend, Racial disparities in discipline uh, in the classroom, discipline for these populations, uh, low pay for teachers, large class size, and unequal resources in terms of the distribution across schools within uh, the various nations. At one point, I was really excited as an educator here in the U.S. Uh, I thought it was part of a movement. And we were challenging the educational system to um, be responsive to multicultural and multi-ethnic populations and needs of those students in the classroom. I thought we were making headway. 
you know, advocating for multicultural, social justice paradigms, anti-racist curriculum. And but I had a student in class recently, and I was talking uh, about, you know, these strategies and things that were being done, what teachers need to be doing. And she brought it to my attention. We don't have time to do any of that in classroom. <laughs> you know, um, she said, uh, I was really uh, just taken aback. You know, I just kind of like opened my eyes and said, okay, let's deal with reality. Uh, what's really going on? These efforts um, uh, for, toward multiracial, uh, multilingualism, multicultural, well, multilingualism in some cases, but in other cases, um, um, they um, have been stalled, uh, particularly for um, African-American students who speak other um, um, uh, languages or dialects or uh, in the schools, uh, trying to meet their needs uh, uh, and work toward uh, success in the schools for these populations has seen somewhat of a halt, if not a turnaround. Um, and with the privatization of schooling uh, going on, reform uh, that once I thought about as moving toward equity, that attention is now being turned to testing and accountability. Equity, to many, now means teaching everyone the same thing, the same way, same time, so they can take the same test. That's troubling to someone from the old guard. So I'm looking for some different things. I wanted to share with you, I thought I'd loosen you up just a little bit. I was thinking about privatization and perhaps in little denial about privatization. So my daughter was traveling abroad and she was in Namibia. And so she, um, she sent me these beautiful pictures of the Namibian desert and how pure and beautiful it was. And then the next picture was this shot. And she said you were very short distance. And, and I myself have done this at Starbucks, uh, Mickey D. Um, and amazingly, I think the one I see the most is Kentucky, you know. And so it's really interesting. Privatization is here, and it's here to stay. And so I thought that was really kind of funny uh, or to think about how rapidly corporatization and privatization is moving globally. So why is it important in education? Globally, it's a high growth industry. Um, by 2030, we expect that the number of high, higher education students enrolled around the world will be in the neighborhood of uh, 414 million, up from 99 million in 2000. That's a huge growth. And with the economic situation the way it is, um, it's, been, it's perhaps being targeted as a growth market for making um, money. Um, so 10.5 million of these um, students are expected to uh, be in the international, in the market for international education. Um, but 
So with this privatization, corporatization in primary and elementary school, it's now arena for profit making. Uh, so that means larger class size, perhaps. Um, privatization of schools, expansion of private management companies, something we didn't see much of um, in earlier years. Testing is now a multi-billion a dollar industry uh, that takes chunks of money from school budgets. Um, and the main beneficiaries, some believe to be uh, the largest book publishing companies. Um, and so we look at the changes that are occurring before our eyes, whether we are in uh, denial or not, changes are occurring. And the question is, how do we move forward to address um, some of the issues that are before us? Um, and so some of the lessons that I've learned. Well, I chose to go back to the silence dialogue because um, 25 years after um, Delpit's conversation, it might made me think about the culture of power that exists inside and outside of classrooms and how it influences teachers' ability or, may I emphasize, inability to teach particularly children of color, um, poor children um, in our schools. In addition, as Delpit said 25 years ago, the voices of she was talking about particular teachers, um, a lot of teachers today, and I might add parents, because I believe that they need to play a much larger role going forward in the education of our children, regardless of the socioeconomic level. Um, but they're being, their voices, teachers and students uh, and parents, their voices are being left out of the dialogue on how best to educate children of color. So I propose that both populations, that teachers and parents, uh, need to become, as I said, agents rather than objects of change, and that they need to, teachers in particular, move in the direction of becoming generative thinkers in the classroom. How do we move in that direction? Um, we know, we do know, uh, that efforts to uh, produce teacher-proofing curriculum hasn't worked. Telling teachers what to do, when to do, and how to do it, that's not going to solve the problem in the classrooms that I'm concerned about. Uh, these efforts have taught us that uh, regulations don't transform schools. Um, so I've learned that we need to work in the direction of developing teachers who have the skills, dispositions, and the knowledge needed to teach all students well. And that's required. Um, teacher, teachers need models about knowledge in terms of dealing with students from diverse backgrounds. Teacher educators, uh, some have those kinds of uh, background experiences. Many do not. Um, and so they're not able to cover that kind of information in their instruction. Teachers need what I have found a process which is not linear, but it is recursive. You could be at any point, enter at any point, and go back at any point on the model of generative change and engage with reflection, introspection, critique, 
and moving toward the development of voice. As they reflect, using reflection, they increase their metacognitive awareness, introspection, increasing uh, advocacy, critique, agency, and a voice toward generative thinking and generativity. Um, we need teachers who know how to talk and listen to their students in order to learn what they need to learn about cultural and linguistic properties and practices that they bring into the classroom so that they can build on them. We need to know how to use the knowledge that students bring into the classroom in teacher-student interaction and in instructional problem solving. So my goal is to develop teachers on an ongoing basis who learn from their students on an ongoing basis in generative ways, not depending on scripted lessons or uh, non-thinking uh, existence in classrooms. They need to be able to think generatively, to learn from their students what they need to know in order to teach them. This is the model of generative change. As you can see, I've already talked about uh, the reflection. We start in my uh, teacher education work with reflection, narrativization to increase metacognitive awareness, moving toward a, uh, a goal of the awakening on the part of the students in the teacher education program. From there, we include more uh, exercises that have to do with introspection and trying to build on uh, uh, Vygotsky's ideological, uh, no, uh, Bakhtin's ideological becoming, engaging with ideas and involvement uh, that they can uh, engage with new perspectives and in new perspectives that are, uh, they can decide to either accept or reject in their own teaching practices. And as they accept or reject, they move in an direction of agency. Next, we begin to bring in critique, uh, theories, perspectives, uh, different perspectives, uh, building on heteroglossia and internalization, um, and engage teachers in activities of action research, involvement with students in the field on an ongoing basis to build a sense of advocacy on the part of teachers, and then we move toward the development of voice, uh, use of knowledge, and problem solving, theory posing in generative ways so that they can have a sense of efficacy within their classroom. Efficacy meaning a belief that they do indeed have the ability to make a difference in the life of their students. Many teachers in the classrooms that I'm talking about don't have this sense of efficacy. And so when I talk about generativity, I'm talking about a teacher's ability to learn on a continual basis. A teacher being able to bring the knowledge that they've brought from their personal experiences, combine that with the knowledge that they learn in teacher education programs, take that knowledge into classrooms, in order to learn from the communities and the students that they're engaging with, to bring those three together in generative ways to do pedagogical problem solving.
in terms of what needs to be going on in the classroom to meet the needs of the students that they need to serve. And so generativity is continual learning. Uh, and as I've said it before, it's so important that teachers need to be able to learn, to learn on the spot, to be thinking, to be moving, to be engaging and interactive with their students in ways that they can actually learn from the students what they need to know in order to teach them. Now, what I found most important in my teacher education experiences is that teachers need to be able to look at the cultural and linguistic resources that students bring into the classroom, they have to see those as resources rather than as from a deficit perspective. And in the generative thinking that they do, they're encouraged to build upon the knowledge that the students bring into the classroom. And the most difficult change that I found in my work with teachers is changing attitudes. Attitudes and dispositions and the belief that all kids can learn and that they can make a difference in the life of all the students in their classroom. So in the evolution of that model, what I've moved toward is some things that need to be happening in an ecological way um, in our teaching and learning and engagement as we move toward meeting the needs of students from diverse backgrounds. And so in the work that I do, I begin with the teacher education, you know, the teacher educators. I look at the teacher education program and, uh, who say that they want to address issues of diversity uh, and preparing teachers to work with diverse student populations. And um, um, the teachers must first uh, model those stages of generativity found in the model for their students. They must reflect, be introspective, be critical in their thinking, and bring a sense of voice and generativity to their classroom. And so if they model the, these uh, uh, characteristics in their teaching, they will impact their teacher candidate, candidates who they, in their uh, pedagogical uh, 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 planning in their classroom, go through those steps that I showed in the model. Then I found in my research that those teacher candidates then go into communities and classrooms with their students, and they model those four stages with their students as well. And so instead of just doing what's in the book, they require their students to be reflective, to be introspective, to be able to think in critical ways, and to have a voice. Yes, it's appreciated in the classroom. And so when the students engage in those ways in their classrooms, they're encouraged to then go out into the community and exercise, uh, do community research. Um, 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 what is it? Um, Youth participatory action research, going out into the field, collecting narratives from family members and uh, others in their community, interviewing the uh, school board, other members, gathering information and challenging their own communities in generative ways uh, so that they can bring change and innovation to their own communities. And then I expect those communities to impact 
the teacher education programs and the universities and create change um, to happen uh, within those environments. And this is how we have an ecological model of change. And so uh, in one context where I've been working with a group, what we've been doing is a six-part program, uh, beginning with uh, working with the teacher educators in the context um, is the first part. Um, and um, uh, so that the scholars, the faculty, uh, teacher educators become revived. Why did I come into this? What brought me here? What excites me about teaching? Book clubs, reading, conversations, ongoing learning and bringing in speakers to work with uh, the teacher educators in the environment. Uh, the second part is a specialized program in urban teacher education uh, where um, uh, the students um, are exposed to competencies that they will need uh, to be able to be effective in urban classrooms. Um, the third part, we have a pipeline program that we've been working on with the students going into the high schools, working with students in the high school. We have a teaching academy at the high school where the high schoolers have professors coming from the school teaching them about uh, digital storytelling, uh, multiculturalism, what is it, how does it play itself out, uh, strategies for teaching and learning. They do tutoring and they go into classrooms and uh, work with kids as well. Um, also, an African-American male mentoring program. These fellows go in and work with students um, in um, the schools to make a difference specifically in the lives of African-American uh, male students. Uh, conference that we uh, all get together, all of those groups come together to put on a conference to share the learning uh, with the surrounding school districts, and finally, um, uh, recognition for generativity and innovation on the part of those who are involved. And so our goal here is to build our own next generation of excellent teachers for poor, under-resourced, and underachieving schools. It's centered on developing teachers who think in generative ways about issues of equity, quality, and educational opportunity and how they might do that in innovative ways. And so as I close, it's before 1 o'clock, so we can have time for conversation. Uh, when I close, I just want to leave a thought with you, and it's a challenge. Um, I've talked to... Uh, populations across national boundaries about a global agenda for uh, developing teachers um, for diverse classrooms because we're all across national boundaries being challenged with this. Um, and what we remember as in our conversation is that we can. We can. We can, whenever we choose, successfully teach all children whose schooling is of interest to us. We know how to educate children. We do it every day. We know how to educate them. We know what it takes to educate them well. We already know more than we need to know in order to do this. But whether we do it or not, in a much more aggressive way than we've been doing it, depends on how we feel about the fact that we have not done it so far. That's a challenge. And so I leave that challenge with you, and I thank you for this 
time to talk and share ideas and ev uh, evolving ideas. And I look forward to continuing conversation. Thank you. school board mm -hmm. and what that might add to the way you're thinking um, and using that model within those contexts that's a, so you're suggesting that I add that to my repertoire of no dominant group you mean in terms of numbers racially ethnically within the school or the school board in the board. What about in the schools? Oh, it's, well, that's what I'm saying. There's still lots of problems. Okay. That's why I'm wondering about if I think it'd be very interesting to look at the problems hmm. in that context. Sure, that would be interesting. And what I'm thinking about uh, is what we said that culture of power that exists on the school board, in the schools, and in the classroom, the culture of power still exists. Um, and uh, classrooms and school boards quite often replicate the patterns and trends that we see in the larger society. And so I would be surprised to see, you know, um, but there could very well be uh, different trends, uh, different efforts, movements going forward within particular school boards or um, school districts where you have different demographics on the board or within the classroom or within the teaching population. It would be interesting to look at that. So thank you for that suggestion. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Dion. I'm also from uh, another country, New Zealand. Oh, um, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to um, ask, I guess, a, a two-part question. From the different countries you've looked at, mm -hmm. um, what are some examples um, that stuck in your mind of, oh, yeah, this classroom's doing it well, or this teacher or this school system's doing it well? And the second part of the question would be, how then do you spread that change from that school or system outwards to, to other schools? Is it professional development networks or some other mechanism? Well, that's what, okay, first of all, yes, let, second question first. How do you spread uh, the successes or information that you're, you're learning and gaining how do you spread that outward? And um, opening up conversations. Um, the university that I visited in Fakatani, um, uh, 
One thing I was so excited about, brand new facility, uh, in Maori University, and when I stood up to talk, um, this board was filled with um, other locations that were streaming in to see the presentation uh, and to ask questions and to enter the discourse. And so that communication and collaboration is endless. The possibilities, we are at a point in time where we can be very generative in our thinking about how to uh, do research, to document the successes, um, under what conditions they exist, and how they might be transferred um, or applicable to other contexts. And if, in fact, they are, because like they're experimenting with my model and coming up with uh, some, some variations for different contexts. But it's very interesting. The first and most important is communication and collaboration, which we are able to do on a much broader basis. Um, yes, I've seen uh, classrooms where uh, very successful learning, uh, say that I've spent most time in South Africa, uh, teachers that are just dynamite, uh, who are self-sacrificing, who are going back to school for further training, who are um, 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 doing an excellent job with uh, the students and in the schools and in the um, township under-resourced context. They are thinking generatively. Uh, they are taking, they're doing a lot with a little. Uh, which under-resourced populations that have thrived have always done. But we don't want to have to continue to do that. And so the coming together of the voices, uh, uh, a, uh, a global agenda of these particular um, um, uh, populations who are concerned in these ways with the growing diversity worldwide, I think it's a powerful notion that we want to pursue that we want to continue to communicate, come together, uh, and share our voices and support one another um, in the um, sharing of knowledge. So that's where I am right now. Other questions, comments? Yeah, you're, I want to jump up to your fourth um, quadrant. And thanks so much for your talk. The, the um, Very oppressive policies <laughs> and the power of culture land most heavily on urban schools, poverty schools. Okay. The teachers in those schools, um, in order to do what you're doing, often feel that they have to be really, frankly, subversive. Mm. So yeah. I would just encourage you to add to that fourth quadrant the need to get your model and, and this kind of thinking very clearly to, the, to leaders. Okay. Because the principals in those schools also feel they need to be subversive in order to develop the advocacy and the agenda caught as they are between conflicting power centers external to the school. Um, That's an excellent point, which all of us who have been in classrooms and tried to do innovative or different things that are outside of the mandated um, um, curriculum uh, that we are presented with, we've um, perhaps engaged in some subversion of our own. Well, you so, have to. Yes. I mean, there is. is no alternative. My, my mm -hmm. point is that the 
<laughs> both the awareness coming down and the subversion going up have to be have to be happening. Have um, to meet and somewhere. then I wanted to add that if we get the common core work right, it's going to mm -hmm. stand a lot of this on its head. Um, and so that doesn't show up in your model in, in, in this particular setup, you know, slide deck. Mm -hmm. But if we get it right, it's going to be, it could have the most profound impact in precisely those classrooms. So I should put a slide in that says, if we get it right, this is going to... Well... No, how to get it right. Oh, oh. Right. okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. I'm more interested in the how. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you for those comments. Or... Um, what was really, I really appreciated about um, your talk today was that you're talking about challenging a discourse that I, I have really um, found surprising, and it is the deficit discourse. Mm -hmm. um, and I hear things, like I hear people talking about things like dealing with diversity, mm. which, it, you know, to me sort of takes my breath away. And so mm. I think... Um, you know, in responding to what was just said, that the most important thing that we can do at this point is to continue to challenge that um, that negative, the negative, the deficit model mm -hmm. um, in teacher education, and I think that does require um, working with teacher educators first. And that's a quite a job, yeah. and we have our job cut out for us. Yeah. So, Arnita, can you say a little bit about um, how you help? shift their dispositions because dispositions are based on belief structures mm -hmm. and if you don't have high expectations for kids or you think some kids can't do it, you know, what, how do we help people in teacher ed and uh, in the process but also folks that are already in service mm -hmm. begin to look at their own dispositions toward varieties of children? Well, we've tried. I've tried several. Um, and um, the one that seems to work best is engaging individuals in um, narrative, narratives of others, their own narratives, their own reflection. They begin by making the um, um, things that they were not aware of becoming aware of how did they learn, what was their learning experience. Um, who do they talk to about issues of diversity? Um, and so as they uh, engage in prompts, and I use writing as a pedagogical tool, uh, to allow teachers and students to, to, to think within their own hearts and their own heads as they compose. Um, and so they reflect through their written narratives and sharing. We must have a safe environment that um, encourages open sharing uh, of self-reflection, uh, self-discoveries of where I am, who I am. Oh my, I didn't know that I had biases. And uh, I begin, you know, I'm one of the first to uh, share personal biases and how I wasn't aware or, you know, uh, and we have a, a very safe environment for openness and sharing, and uh, as Bruner says, narrative is a 
wonderful tool for sharing one's experiences, one's reality, and as it changes, you know, those narratives can change. And so that metacognitive awareness of who they are, what they think, how they feel, and perhaps a coming to an understanding that perhaps if I'm, I'm not fit for, for this, um, this kind of uh, um, uh, profession, working in particular types of environments. Um, and so then at least make the decision that I'm not going to go someplace where um, I shouldn't be, that I, could, I can do harm. Uh, and so um, that's a revelation and an awakening, you know, for individuals. So that metacognitive awareness of who I am, where I am, maybe this is not the time. The seeds are planted and they can bloom at different times in one's life. And so moving from that metacognitive awareness to the other stages of advocacy, agency, you know, and the development of a personal stance. And once you know who you are and what you believe, stand on it, mm -hmm. you know, and be firm. Yes, this is who I am. Um, maybe I won't do this, but I can do this, and I'm going to do it well. And so it's the development of a different kind of a teacher, a teacher who has pride uh, in their efficacious ability to make a difference in somebody's life. And so who that might be? through the discovery process in the teacher education program uh, and opportunities to, to share and be open and real in a safe environment, that's critically important. So. so can you say a little bit more about how you help people feel safe? Because you're never completely safe. You know, when you do reflection and introspection, sure. you really are starting to let yourself be vulnerable. So there's a certain amount of discomfort. Sure. Can you talk about how you help people feel safe enough to, you know, do true introspection? I try to help them feel comfortable with vulnerability, okay. you know, imperfection, you know. Um, and I myself, you know, am an example of, you know, I don't try to be um, uh, authoritative, dictatorial type of a, of a teacher in the teacher education program, but one who models ongoing continual learning. Uh, and, um, and so I model and try not to be judgmental and encourage them to be supportive of each other, uh, which I, I believe they probably would be good if they could be that throughout their careers. And so um, you have to learn to be comfortable with imperfection and vulnerability. And now I've seen a lot of people at some institutions that are not comfortable with imperfection or feeling of imperfection, but you have to start somewhere and you have to believe that that's okay and be willing to learn, taking a learner's stance. Thank you so much, Ernita. Thank you so much for coming. Okay. Wow. So much peace.